folks. Welcome again to the Trauma Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by two of my favorite people, Dr. Carrie Latham and Dr. Fan Liang. And Fan and Carrie are uh, part of our plastic surgery department here at the University of Maryland, and they really do help us a lot out a lot at R. Adams Cali with many of the facial injuries that we see. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks, Thanks so the Shock Trauma Group, uh, the facial plastics group here, not very long ago, conducted a really nice review from the National Trauma Data Bank looking at contemporary characterization of injury patterns, initial management, and even disparities in treatment from facial fractures. And you guys published that in the Journal of Craniofacial Surgery in October 2019. I found this was a great effort to kind of help me understand better the common injuries you see and uh, how they varied by age, sex, mechanism of injury in terms of what you treated operatively. And the oper- just an example, the operative intervention rates in that review were highest for mandible fractures at about 63% and lowest for orbit fractures at 1%. So that helped me better understand and be a good partner to you folks as our uh, you know, facial plastics experts. And I'm really kind of, as a personally, I struggle with predicting what needs intervention or not and, and, and being a good partner to you folks, particularly for those complex facial injuries, because I'm just a knuckle-dragging trauma surgeon. What do I know? Um, but I was hoping that you guys could help us in the context of here of 30 minutes or so to, to become better partners and become better educated about what influences you and the need for early operative intervention for facial trauma. So with, with your permission, specifically, I'd like to ask kind of about specific variables one at a time to start here and how they influence the decision making that you guys make. So. I guess I'll throw to fan first, um, mechanism in particular. We see penetrating and blunt and pretty common frequencies here at Shock Trauma. What are the differences between them? How does mechanism more specifically influence what, uh, what needs an operation early, what doesn't? Well, Joe, um, mechanism can be an Im- impactful factor in many ways. Um, First and foremost, if it's a very dirty wound with a lot of soft tissue involvement, uh, you'd want to take the patient to the operating room early to do a thorough debridement, um, to basically get control of the soft tissue envelope. Um, If there are open mandible fractures, these are also uh, things that you would want to take early. And generally, you know, large um, destructive forces that are high impact happen with, say, MBCs or with gunshot wounds. Um, you know, you don't see as much soft tissue involvement or as much combination per se with um, falls or, um, you know, um, older patients who also fall. Um uh, Carrie, I think you, we had split these questions up to basically have each of us talk a little bit more about each one. I think Carrie had thought a little bit more um, extensively about this. I'm going to defer to her okay. because she had some really nice points that she wanted to bring up. That's great. And I'll just move forward. I'll just throw out the question and whoever of, um, between the two of you was going to take that one can go with it. So Carrie, what, what, what did Fan miss about uh, mechanism? So mechanism is interesting because age, region, and gender influence people's activities and therefore their mechanism of injury. So although mechanism of trauma changes by age group, car accidents are prevalent across all ages and are often high energy. Babies and toddlers are injured in falls, accidents, and unfortunately, non-accidental trauma. 
their heads are really large proportionally compared to their faces and their bodies. So from our perspective, their skulls are more commonly injured. And so if a baby or toddler comes in, we really want to be evaluating for any skull injuries. In school-aged kids, sports injuries come on the rise and bike, bicycle accidents um, are pretty prevalent. Kids, their faces are developing their sinuses and they typically have smaller mandibles and still retrusive faces. Nasal bone injuries end up being more common, so it should be evaluated for that. And a lot of the fractures are green-sticked or not very displaced. And so luckily, a lot of them are non-operative. Young adults also have sports injuries, but now interpersonal injuries um, arise, some violence. Nasal bone and mandible fractures are the most common amongst this group. And then in older age, falls become more common. And in older age, women seem to live longer, more women fall um, in that group. So overall mechanism influences, uh, is influenced by the force, the displacement, as well as the soft tissue injury. And the mechanism of injury is often based on age, gender, and the region and what people are doing, what their life is like there. Okay, so it sounds like age, gender, mechanism all play a role. What about specific fracture types? Why, from your paper, from the NTDB review, it seemed that mandible was most commonly operated on early and orbitals least commonly operated on early. Why, why is that? Can you guys help me figure that out? Yeah, so um, when you're doing analysis using data from the NTDB, you have to take into account that you know they're only reporting on operations that are happening at the index emission. So if these patients are being discharged and operated on, you know, as outpatients, that does not show up. Um, but the paper does, you know, emphasize that there are a lot of discrepancies in the types of um, fractures and their rates of operation. So, you know, in a kind of straightforward way, if you do have a mandible fracture uh, and it's significantly displaced, that is not really going to get better on its own without operative intervention. So your main goal is to reestablish occlusion. And um, to do that, you, you know, either put them in MMF or you go in and put plates and screws in. Um, but that's relatively straightforward. You fix the patient, they're able to be discharged. Now, the indications for fixing a lot of these other fractures is a little bit less well-defined. Um, and also the timing is a little bit less um, rigorous. So we can start with orbital fractures. And with orbital fractures, the goal really is to prevent two things. One is double vision or diplopia, and the other is anophthalmus. Now, you know, it is hard. I, I know this sounds surprising, but there's actually no super rigorous criteria for which orbital fractures are going to lead to either diplopia or anophthalmus. And um, obviously, the larger the fracture, the more likely that these patients will have, you know, these consequences. But um, it is sort of hard to predict at the beginning. As a result, uh, some surgeons may choose to wait about two weeks. At that point, if the patient has any diplopia, it's most likely going to be permanent when they will step in and fix the defect. Um, and with anophthalmus, that's often hard to gauge when there's a lot of swelling. So they may wait for the swelling to come down. Now, the second thing that plays a role in timing for orbital fractures is the time at which the patient presents. So if they have just gotten hit in the face, then they're probably not as swollen. You potentially could operate on them 
at that time if it seems to be a pretty large fracture that will lead to down, down uh, stream consequences of either anaphthalmus or diplopia. But if they come in, you know, 12 hours later, a day later, most likely they're going to be very, very swollen. And it becomes technically um, very difficult to do a subconjunctival incision and get to the fracture. So these are some of the things that we think about. Um, you know, with other fractures of the face, such as, um, you know, ZMC fractures, there's a gray area for operative, in- operative intervention, mainly because these fractures are designed... Well, the indication to fix it is to reestablish facial symmetry and the pre-morbid facial appearance. And for some ZMC fractures, you know, you may want to you may want to fix it if they're young. If they're much older, you may not want to fix it because the risk of operation um, is not is sort of higher than the benefit that they would receive from you know. Um, lessening their malar width or project or improving their malar projection by just a few millimeters. So like you can have patients in their 70s or 80s who decline to operate. But um, anyway, to make a long story short, the indications for mandible fractures are relatively straightforward. And those for a lot of these other facial fractures, sometimes a little less so. Okay. Well, let me ask it. We, we ask everybody to kind of memorize the little fort fracture pattern. It's a classic question when it comes to um, facial trauma. Is that something that is useful to you? Uh, do we use it in a clinical context, or is it just really just a vernacular we use to kind of characterize facial injury for you know academic purposes, or does it have actual clinical impact into what you you folks do in terms of the Laforts? Uh, you know, the Lafort characterizations are nice in that it gives a general gestalt about what the overall fracture pattern is, but. For me personally, I, I sort of break the fractures into their component parts. So if there is a, you know, NOE fracture or an orbital fracture, I will address those independently, even though you might have both of those present in the Lefort 2 fracture um, scenario. So I think it's good to know the classification, um, but uh, clinically you, you break it down into its component parts for the most part. Okay. What about sinus involvement? Uh, how does that influence your decision making? So sinuses are pretty fascinating structures. I kind of consider the sinuses the airbags of the face. Oh. They're a crumple zone sure. where the traumatic energy diffuses to protect our eyes and our brains. Uh, so they also make our heads lighter and resonate our voices and do a bunch of fun things. Um, but it, Around the sinuses, there are eight facial buttresses, and these are the important, thicker, bony areas that will hold plates and screws and also need to be reconstructed to have the projection, the facial width, and the facial height. So the sinuses aren't really terribly involved in that. They're, they're too thin and they're too fragile to be repaired for the most part. Okay. The, the frontal sinus is a bit different, so a significant outer table defect can have a poor aesthetic outcome or look like a big dent in your forehead. And the nasal frontal outflow tract can be disrupted or the dura torn with a posterior table injury with potential CSF leak. Now, all of these things are far more serious. And indications for surgery could include persistent CSF leak, particularly if it exceeds seven days, uh, or if it's associated with significant brain injury and the neurosurgeons are recommending 
uh, surgery for additional reasons. Well, let's talk about that because you, you folks often work in conjunction with other folks. We have, uh, you know, the brain surgeons come to mind uh, immediately. Um, and you have specialists that specialize in the inner ear and uh, that all work in this realm of the facial plastics kind of realm. What other associated injuries influence what you do? And in particular, I guess I'm getting at brain. Um, how does that, how does the associated brain injury impact what you do operatively and when you do it? Well, that's a great question. And we really take our lead from you, the trauma surgeons, because you're the expert of the whole patient and know when it's a safe and appropriate time to take the, per- the patient, but also from neurosurgeons. So if they're going in to do a decompressive crany or they might be exposing some of the upper parts of our facial fractures that we'd like to get after, uh, we'll go in and combo with them because they're there anyways and they're doing that exposure. So it reduces the need for that patient to have that exact same exposure re-elevated and get in the way of what the neurosurgeons have just done. So we are always happy to kind of join in and partner. It's really, we're a very collaborative um, specialty and really enjoy working with ENT, ophthalmology, general surgery, trauma surgery, neurosurgery, and everyone. So um, always invite us to the party and we yeah. will be sure to come. It always impresses me how many people you can cram <laughs> around a face and different specialties can be there when it is really needed. What other factors so, we cover? Joe, I was going to add real yeah. quick too that sometimes the question comes up or we're consulted for a patient with severe facial trauma with concomitant severe brain injury and um, we'll be asked, you know, is it even um, – is it even important to fix the facial fractures if the patient has a very poor prognosis from a neurocognitive standpoint? And, um, you know, a lot of these facial fractures, you can operate on them on day one up to two weeks before their significant callus formation. So, you know, delaying the um, facial fixation is not terrible, um, and you can wait for the patient to stabilize from their other systems first before you you know, go in and operate. And the other thing too is that a lot of these patients end up having pretty um, dramatic neurocognitive recovery. It's hard to predict a priori who is going to recover and who isn't. So my rule of thumb is generally, you know, even if they have what appears to be pretty devastating brain injury, especially if they're young, just go in and fix the facial fractures. Um, it's always better to have that done, you know, at the get-go versus six months out when they're starting to come around again and then to go back and try and dress the facial fractures. That's a fantastic pearl. Thanks, Van. Uh, we, we've covered a lot of stuff about what guides you folks to early operative management or not. We've covered everything from age and gender to the types of fractures, the presence of edema. What other things before we kind of move into how we can be better partners as a trauma community to help you? What are the factors that influence your decision on early operative treatment or late did we miss? Did we miss anything or do we cover everything? Um, I mean, I think we've, we've been pretty uh, good about covering most of the important points. Carrie, is there anything that you can think of? I agree. And just to footstop what Van was just saying, you know, you guys save the patients' lives and it's our job to really ensure the best quality of life afterwards with the face that they move forward with. Uh, Face is so important for identity, 
for how people receive you socially. So we want to give that patient the best chance, just like Fan was saying. Totally, totally agree. So important. And so how do we as trauma surgeons help to give the patient that best chance for optimal facial recovery? A couple of questions here. Optimal imaging. We're often the ones who order the initial imaging. Um, What's ideal? Do you always need reconstructions of the face? I mean, we get it here at Shock Trauma. We have kind of a protocol with facial injuries to get a facial CT, but should we ask them to get universal reconstructions? How does that influence your operative planning? Does that help? So, Joe, that's a great question. Um, For bony fractures, CT is definitely the best imaging modality. It gives us a very clear view of the bone, and you can do some soft tissue windowing in the case where you need to assess, you know, muscular involvement, like, you know, orbital entrapment, for instance. Now, the 3D reconstruction that you talk of has been utilized more and more frequently. Um, You know, historically, everybody just relied on the 2D slices, and it was expected that you would just be able to piece it all together in your head and understand the 3D morphology of the fracture based off of the 2D projection. Um, I would say that if you look at a lot of CT scans, you can definitely um, do it in your head. But for a lot of our residents and people who are just starting off in interpreting these CT scans, the facial anatomy and topography is very complex. So having a 3D rendition really makes it very clear um, when they go into the OR exactly what they're dealing with. So I would say that for teaching purposes, it's it's extraordinarily helpful to have a 3D recon because you can just point out the areas of, you know, nuance to the resident. Um, is it absolutely necessary? No, it is not. But is it tremendously useful, especially in complex cases? I would say that it is. Okay, that's great advice for me. And I will remember that next time I'm on trauma call and about to call one of you folks. Um Nasogastric tubes, right? So ATLS teaches us we got to decompress the stomach with the caution, you know, relative caution that in the presence of a basal or skull fracture, you should be cautious. But what about from a plastics perspective? And you guys deal with more facial trauma than I do in, in a much more condensed fashion. Do NG tubes present problems or what concerns do you have about a trauma PGY1 placing an NG tube in a patient with a complex facial fracture? Really, none, but typically a really complex facial fracture, they are already intubated frequently, and so an OG tube is just more simple, Um, but it doesn't necessarily get in our way, and again, it's pretty easy to swap them out to the oral if required, so it's not really a distractor for us in what we're trying to get after. Okay. What about antibiotic coverage? What can we do to help you in the, on the front end to provide adequate antibiotic coverage for these facial fractures? Um, you know, the antibiotic question is interesting because there's actually um, no really well-designed um, studies to dictate sort of which antibiotics to use and even really the uh, timing of antibiotics. Now, the best paper on this, incidentally, came out in 2014 from the shock trauma team um, from the craniofacial group, and they looked at the evidence behind antibiotics and facial fractures, and their, their conclusion really was that the data was lacking, but they said that, um, generally speaking, preoperative but not postoperative antibiotic use is recommended for comminuted mandible fractures. Now, if it's an open fracture, I would definitely extend the antibiotics for a few days. Um, 
And uh, again, if it's an open fracture, you, you definitely want to get the antibiotics on as soon as possible. Otherwise, you just give perioperative uh, antibiotics. What's your go-to choice for antibiotics for both? Recognizing it may vary, there's lots of different options depending on what you're covering. What's your go-to choice for antibiotic coverage? I mean, I just defer to the standard at the hospital. So at Shock, I think we just go with ANSEF. Um, at Michigan, we did, I think, Clinda. Um, there's really no gold standard out there. Carrie, what do you guys use at your hospital? Yeah, Clinda is a, a good one. Um, usually ANSEF during the surgery because that's often what anesthesia has immediately available for the periop dose. Okay. All right, Maybe so, augment and post-op for you know oral um, antibiotics after a mandible fracture. Okay. Good points. Good for us to know. What other management items do you wish the trauma team considered more commonly? What questions do we forget to ask or things do we forget to do? Yeah, so Fan and I uh, talked about this a little bit about what are kind of our most frequent conversations uh, that we have when we're making sure that we're communicating effectively with you guys. And one of the things that came to mind is that, you know, we always appreciate you came in and saved their life. And now we're coming through to try to do our exam. A lot of times the patient may be intubated. So we're really keen to read your notes to understand what eye exam you got, what was their vision, what was their facial nerve function, their sensation on their face, and how did their occlusion look before they were intubated. Um, So anything, any information as to the patient's perspective and function and sensation is really greatly appreciated because it's hard to get that exam afterwards. Uh, One of the other items that we talked about is when we do a mandible fracture, as Fan indicated, we place the patient in maxillomandibular fixation. So we wire their mouth closed, essentially. And that's important for us to get their bite right, to set their occlusion before we plate the fractures. Um, So during the case, then, it's difficult to have a standard oral intubation. It can be exchanged to a nasal. We can, uh, if they're missing teeth, we can use that. We can do a submental. Um, If the patient's going to be inpatient for a long time or have multiple surgeries in the trauma team thinks a trach is required, we'd probably set our surgery to be done after that. So sort of coordinating what's the airway plan is really important in our conversation uh, regarding the mandible fracture when it's in conjunction with many other uh, injuries. And one of the most important ones that we regularly reach back to is the C-spine. The C-spine is injured in 10% or sometimes more of high injury, uh, high impact, um, high energy facial fractures. And so We want to be so careful. Um, In no way uh, do we want to adjust or move a patient who's needing C-spine precautions. But a lot of the patients um, can have their C-spine cleared, and they have been lucky, and they haven't been injured. It could be 90% of them. So if the C-spine can be cleared before surgery, it really makes it easier for us because we can turn the head, get the right angle. It's advantageous for um, being able to view everything we need to see. Uh, We can do the surgery with the C-spine precautions if there is an injury, um, but it, it is a lot easier for us if we can work together to clear the patients that can be cleared before we move on. Yeah, I can only imagine. And and that's great advice for us. I appreciate that. What are the mistakes we make? This is your free chance, ladies, to take a shot at all the trauma surgeons and I'll back you up. Well, actually, we talked about this too. And (laughs) we we don't see 
mistakes, really. We just see opportunities to partner and enhance our teamwork. And I think you reaching out to us is a great way to open that communication. We really value the trauma team, the nurses, the docs, the techs. And we're satellite team members. Uh, we're here to help problem solve with facial trauma, wound healing, burns. And we look forward to being meaningful colleagues. And we aim to deliver the best possible care. So we're just really glad to have this conversation and be invited to hang out with cool trauma surgeons like yourself. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. It's not, I'm not, I don't <laughs> fall in that category. Um, outpatient care. So, you know, as a trauma surgeon, and this is our stereotype, and it's fair. We we consider the success. We get them outside the hospital, hospital, and we often lose track of the th- other things that impact outcomes afterwards. And facial trauma, as you touched on, is really a key piece of that, right? It's it's all about self identity. It's about mastication and daily function, just the things we take for granted. You guys did a really nice work as a group, um, looking at in this area, looking at the face Q scale and predictors of patient satisfaction outpatient after after repair. Uh, I think it was published in the Plastics Reconstruction Surgery of uh, Global Open Journal in December of 2018. I, that's just off the top of my head. It's not written down in, on a piece of paper in front of me or anything. Um, <laughs> But from that effort, you guys did identify that, like, current smoking habit, uh, mandibulomaxillary fixation. Why are all the ENT words so tongue-tying for me? I don't know. (laughs) Mandibulomaxillary fixation and Lefort fractures were predictors of low satisfaction and poor quality of life scores post-op. So I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about what types of challenges and symptoms do those patients have that contributes to that decreased satisfaction and what are the challenges longer term for you folks managing those patients with complex facial fractures after repair? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. And um, the answer is, is it can be complex because we are dealing with um, the entire spectrum of facial injury. And there are a lot of things that will affect how a patient regards their final outcome. You alluded to some of them, including you know, how well do their teeth fit together? Um, do they have any long-lasting, persistent facial pain? Do they feel like they look the same as they did before the injury? And all of these play a role in their overall satisfaction. Um, In addressing some of the topics that you mentioned, you know, you said smoking habit is associated with the lower satisfaction. Um, There could be many reasons for this. One is that smoking in and of itself is a risk factor for, you know, poor bone union or for infection. So the patients who smoke may end up having a protracted post-operative course. They might have to go back to the operating room a few times. They may have to have bone grafting for bones that don't heal um, after plating. For patients who get uh, mandibulomaxillary fixation, or we just say MMF, um, you know, it is really terrible getting your jaw wired shut. It is unpleasant. You can't brush your teeth properly. The wires um, cut into your your cheeks and into your lips, and you can't talk, and you really have a very difficult time eating because you can't actually open your mouth, so you have to take everything in by a straw or, you know, everything has to be liquid. So, so these patients are also pretty miserable. Um, the patients who get MMF are also a different population than those who don't get MMF. So for patients who are poor surgical candidates, you might elect to do MMF versus, you know, ORIF because they have poor bone stock or they're going to be poor follow-up candidates. Um, so again, that's, that, you know, segregates the 
patients who get the MMF from those who do not. And then lastly, the patients with the Lafort fractures, you know, having a Lafort fracture is more an indication that you've had extensive facial fractures. You know, it wasn't an isolated nasal fracture or an isolated mandible. We're talking about several areas of the face um, that have been affected. So the injury severity for patients with Lafort is automatically much higher than that for other patients. And with increased facial bone involvement, the uh, complexity of the surgery goes up and the, you know, the duration of the repair or the duration of the recovery goes up. Um, and, you know, most likely there's soft tissue involvement or missing bone, increased comminution. So the recovery for these patients is, again, much, much more complex than for the standard facial fracture patients. These are all things that you might want to keep in mind when you're thinking about overall patient satisfaction when you're going back and reviewing these cases. I hated having braces. I can't imagine having my whole jaw <laughs> wired shut. That would be terrible. That's the worst. I, yeah. I can only imagine. Um, all right, ladies, you guys, you, both of you have been a wealth of knowledge, and I really do think our listeners are going to benefit from better understanding how we contribute to uh, what we can do to make your lives easier and the patient's lives easier. But we've come to that time in the podcast where we jump into our random questions. And I've kind of explained to you folks how this works, <laughs> and we will take turns, and I will start. Actually, I'll throw this one open to both of you. Um, okay. Clowns. Are they funny or creepy? Creepy. Definitely creepy. Definitely <laughs> creepy. How's this whole career feel? Poor clowns. I mean, if you're a clown in the modern era, you really just don't stand a chance. Everybody's going to think you're creepy. I, mean, um, I think they were funny up until Stephen King came out with that movie, in, and I think it just destroyed everybody's opinion about clowns. Do you think the clowns should bring a class action lawsuit against Stephen King? <laughs> Maybe we can get one of our local attorneys to, to a class action attorneys to institute that. Um, it's often cited that Albert Einstein, who is really one of the great minds of our age, and I use this question a lot so people have heard this diatribe, but he, he had a problem tying his shoes by report, right? So the two of you are plastic surgeons at a high-end institution. You have, I've seen it personally, exceptional skills, meticulous attention to detail. You have intellect. You have creativity. But you got to have some chinks in the armor. So like Einstein, what are you surprisingly bad at in your daily lives? Carrie, why don't you go first? <laughs> oh, hot potato. I can't carry a tune. Really? I cannot sing, not musical at all. Do you get a panic attack before karaoke bout or? I, it's just so sad. I mean, I had all <laughs> non-speaking, non-singing parts in childhood, um, oh. you know, plays and musicals at school. And it was just really tragic. <laughs> All right. Fan, what, what's your weakness? Uh, I'm very, very bad with geographic orientation. I cannot, you know, I can't remember how to get anywhere ever. I have to just use my yeah. GPS. I use my GPS from the hospital to my home. Um, if I'm taking a route that's different from my usual route. I just, some people just know where they are spatially relative to everything else. And I... I just have to take the exact same route or I have to rely on landmarks, but I, I never know what's north, east, west, or south. Like, it's completely out there for me. Fan, we might be kindred spirits. My wife tells me I have to have the GPS on every time, even if I know I'm going the same way, and she chastises me uh, constantly. You can drop me in the woods with a oh, compass and I'll find so my way out, <laughs> but the city, forget about it. Um. So, in my opinion, plastic surgeons also, and this is a stereotype, but I find it to be true, you guys have the best music selection 
in in our profession because you have you know you don't have a bleeding patient and bells and whistles to listen to most of the time. So uh, not a like bleeding to death type patient. Hopefully we set you up for success better than that. Um, so what are the two of you listening to in the OR right now? What's on your playlist? Fan? Well, I'm at home right now um, on maternity leave, and uh, I have been um, listening to a lot of this Estonian composer. His name is Arvo Part, and um, you might not recognize his name, but they use a lot of his music for the soundtrack for movies, many of which involve space. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's a song called Yo, I'm Spiegel, but it's, it's very calm, and it's... Uh, it's, it's just very beautiful, but very calm. And I think I'm listening to it a lot because I have two kids under the age of one and a half and it's, yeah. it just drives me crazy. So, so I just need my... That's mommy time with a glass of wine, right? At the end of the day. And uh, exactly. yeah, fantastic. What about you, Carrie? Um, I kind of am into Jack White, always, Alt-J, Arctic Monkeys, oh. and Milky Chance right now. So when you got scrub cases together, how do you compromise on these differing music? Who picks the music? Is it the senior plastic surgeon in the room, or do you take turns? Well, we haven't had we haven't gotten to operate together yet. I can't wait till we can. But I honestly, I let the nurses pick the music in the room. I want everyone in the room to be happy. Oh, you're, you're and they do a great job. That's great. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think it takes a certain type of person to be really drawn to facial trauma. It's a very creative field. These things are complex injuries. And uh, some of some of the things that you folks repair and make look normal again, I can see in my head and I, I cringe and scratch my head on how you're able to fix it, to be quite honest with you. Um, what is it about these complex facial things that, that drew you to this field? Well, um, I think it's a few of the things that we've touched upon, which is... Um, you know, there's something tremendously satisfying about being able to bring a person's sense of identity and self back to them. And your face is such an integral part of that. So, you know, I I like the fact that we're going to make such a personal impact on these patients. And, um, and there is uh, an artistry to it that I also appreciated. Um, you know, you have to really kind of think carefully about these cases. A lot of them... Um, require multiple trips to the OR, and so it's not always about getting everything right at the first go of it, but planning it and staging it, and um, uh, it's just a lot of fun. Carrie, what any, anything different with your choice? Yeah, both of both Fan and I trained also in in pediatrics, kids who have facial differences, and hearing their parents, um, you know, concerns and then seeing them feel better and feeling optimistic about their child's future that fully translates to adults as well, knowing that they have this sense of identity that's sort of, you know, disrupted. And then we go on this reconstructive journey with them and hearing their feedback and their improvement and the joy we can bring them in their lives is just the ultimate reward and it's addicting and we just want to help more people fantastic well you guys are the best at what you do and i appreciate having you as partners to refer the to uh the manage these patients and i do want to thank you both for your time this evening uh, and I will remind our listeners that you've been listening to the Trauma Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for other topics, please email us at thetraumapodcast at yahoo.com. 
And be sure to check out our other offerings on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you consume podcasts. Thanks for listening.